This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenal, and today we're going to talk about a movie that is really important to me and one that I consider to be one of my favorites of all time. That movie is Cine Lumet's 12 Angry Men. And an interesting story behind all this is um, I'm in a group chat and uh, one of our friends, for anonymity's sake, we'll call her Taryn, uh, asked for some really good movies, our favorite movies in our group chat. And so everyone's listing off their different ones and then I list mine off and one of them is 12 Angry Men and I call it a... Uh, a courtroom thriller, a thriller drama, something like that. And my guest today, Sammy Felchenfeld, who, uh, who's been on this show many times, ha- objected to that right away. So first of all, Sammy, thank you for joining me. And second of all, why do you hate 12 Angry Men? Uh, thank you for having me. And it's not that I hate 12 Angry Men. I think my specific wording is that 12 Angry Men is not a thriller. Oh, sorry. I, you know, I had this gotcha <laughs> question in my head and I was ready to just, you know, throw a knife down on the table and be like, ha, I caught you in your lie. <laughs> I think it's um, I think it's best classified as a as a gripping drama. I think that's the word wording I used. I think in my mind, a thriller is something where you sort of feel um, I'm not going to say you feel thrilled, but you sort of it, it's a bit more high action it's a bit more uh, suspenseful in that you, uh, yes, in this movie and in this in the play that that, that is both based on it and that it's based on, um, that uh, you don't know what's going to happen. But I still think it's it's kind of a loose definition of thriller, especially because it's not it for a shorter movie. It's not a very quick movie. Yeah, it, it is a an hour and a half film, so it's I wouldn't classify it in either quick nor long. Uh, but I guess sort of on the flip side is. Much in the way I feel that people can be enthralled and thrilled by, you know, real life court cases or whether you're watching shows like Law and Order or CSI or things like that, different procedurals. I think this sort of set the template for that where watching this for the first time, you know, it sets out a very basic premise. You have a jury that is about to start deliberating on what seems to be an open and shut murder case. And then slowly bit by bit, new information is revealed. And when a lot of times when this information is revealed, I found it for the first time and, you know, to a lesser extent, the multiple times afterwards seeing it a bit of a shock factor of being like, what am I, what am I seeing? And it, there's a very exhilarating nature to it all. You know, I made reference to throwing a knife on the table, which is a, you know, a famous scene in this movie where they're talking about a a switchblade that was found. It was wholly unique and no one else could have found it. But, you know, our main juror in this film, who's the voice of reason takes one out of his pocket in the middle of a heated argument opens it and then stabs it into the table, which, you know, the first time I saw that just absolutely blew me away. And so I think that's sort of where I get this idea of it is a courtroom thriller. It's not your traditional thriller sense of watching a movie like Psycho or Zodiac or something like that, where it's scary, just in more of the surprise sense that you don't expect uh, a courtroom drama to be. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's true. It doesn't need to be scary to be a thriller. I think I also have to temper my explanation a little bit in that the first time I saw anything about this this uh, movie was actually the 97 TV version. Um, and then I, I liked it. It was fine. Um, and then I found out very soon afterward um, that there was the original film version. And then I watched that when I was a little bit older. I will caution that I was 10 when the TV one came out and I watched it with my parents and was very confused, but I was also kind of blown away by the resolution, which like you said, is definitely from the original story, definitely a template for the courtroom procedurals now. Um, but then of course, seeing the, seeing the original film had a bit of a different approach to it, but I think that was also a time in my life. The first time I saw it where I, I really didn't care for old movies. And I know this is me being on a film podcast <laughs> saying I didn't care for old movies. Um, I, I, I will still say though, that it's not, Maybe the real thing is we don't have a good definition of what thriller means. I think I'm still enthralled. Uh, I think that I'm, I've still, I, I think I know the story a bit too well now, which also might have something to do, to do with that. It's kind of hard to, uh, you, you anticipate what's going to happen because you kind of, if you know the story, you know, you know the resolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think once you've seen it once before, uh, the, the sort of surprise factor definitely wears off very quickly. And you can also see the sort of twists and turns coming a mile away. A lot of this movie is predicated upon the sort of gotcha questions, uh, in the way of, uh, I, I guess what would that be the, the Socratic method where you don't try to take apart someone's argument. You just keep asking questions until they take apart their own argument. Uh, and that movie is really based on that. And as soon as you realize what's happening, you can, you can see the seeds being planted where five, 10 minutes later, it all sort of coming to fruition. And if you've seen it before, you're not going to have that same surprise factor again. Yeah, that's very true. And I think that maybe there's a different, there's kind of a different takeaway from from maybe the second, third time that you watch it, especially the original film, is that this was also the prototypical, uh, as my friends say, bottle episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the it, it was it, it was very unusual in that okay, we just have a single room, and that's the entire the all the action takes place in that room, essentially in order, um, and and like exactly how ancient theater was supposed to be done, um, and that that was super unusual not even getting to the which i know we'll get to the subject of, of the actual uh, film too but um i think that that kind of gives its own thing and then when you watch it again i watched it at, at, one of the times i watched it was in a film class and of course our professor is stopping and saying do you notice this do you notice this do you notice this <laughs> and i was like i didn't notice that but that i i don't know if i care to but it's still really interesting mm-hmm. i and you know i'm glad you bring you bring up the, the sort of bottle episode concept um because i think when when bottle episodes are at their best, you don't realize that are there are bottle episodes. Sure, there's you know two little bookends of this film. The very first one taking place in the courtroom, and the very last scene taking place as they're exiting the courthouse. But other than that, you know you'd be hard pressed for a first time watcher to finish it and right away be like, "That was boring. It only took place in one room. Where what? Where's the action? What was going on?" I, I think that was something that really worked well for it in the fact that you just do not realize that and you, you get a real sense of intimacy for what's going on. And a lot of times when movies are adapted directly from the stage to screen, especially when they're, you know, single room plays, 
there is often a bit of a failure trying to translate that. I know uh, recently the film August Osage County had that issue where it was trying to condense everything into one house and it sort of failed a little bit with that. But there's definitely numerous other examples where it just doesn't work. And this one, it absolutely works. Yeah, definitely. And I think you're absolutely right in sort of when it you don't notice this a bottle, bottle episode until you, you do or until the very end, mm-hmm. uh, which I think this is a lot to this film's credit. And also, I think a bit to the um, to why I think the stage version, I was, I was rereading to learn about it. So the first very first version was a 54 teleplay, a live teleplay written for TV, um, which kind of helps explain the structure that it's in. Then it was adapted into a play right around the time when the, when the first movie was made. <clears throat> and in the, the, the play versions I've seen, they don't seem to get it that it's supposed to be a bottle episode. Um, and I think that, it, that you need 12 very strong actors to make this work, especially, uh, of course, for the, the, the most important ones being number nine and, and, uh, and a lot of the other ones. But, um, I think that, that there's something to be said that if there's not moving pieces and there's not a lot of action, there's not a lot of thrillingness being thrilled, um, that it's a lot harder to pull off a bottle episode of a, of a play or a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, just a slight correction. It was juror number eight, which was the, the Henry Fonda part. Uh, so I guess, you know, yes, since, that's what I meant. <laughs> since you brought up the, you know, needing a strong cast, I, I actually wouldn't mind kind of talking about that a little bit. You know, this, this movie is billed as a Henry Fonda movie and, and sure, he is definitely the most well known actor in this, but this movie works because you have, 12 really strong performances where in an hour and 30 minutes, you get to know exactly what their personalities are, what their backgrounds are, who these people really are, while at the same time knowing very actual little concrete information about them, you know. You get one guy who kind of talks about being an advertising exec and he's always doodling his notepadding and you get one guy talking about how he's a watchmaker. But, you know, that actual concrete information about, hi, this is my name, this is where I'm from, this is what I do, matters very little overall to the actual character content of the, these people's character. And the fact that they're able to get all 12 of them fleshed out so thoroughly in such a short amount of time is, you know, a, a, an absolute mind boggling way of, you know, writing a script and having it acted out and having it directed and, and nothing really feels shortchanged. And like, wow, Henry Fonda is the lead performer in this, you know, especially by the poster standards, you compare him line by line, you know, he's you know, probably right up there. There's probably about six of them who are really the leads. And then the other six who are right up there being the supporting actors. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree with you. I think they benefit from a very good script, but also again, few moving parts in terms of you can focus on all the people. I mean, this is half the length of infinity war. Um, and if that was the first movie that somebody, maybe someone you've already mentioned would, would have seen in a, uh, in a, in a series, um, even if you took away all the action, there isn't enough time to explain all the back history, all the the stories, all the things that have happened to these characters. So it's to the to the benefit of these obviously very strong actors and of course the excellent writing to kind of give them the sense, give you the sense of who they are. And it's interesting from what I do remember is that um, it, obviously when I was a kid, it gave me a very skewed sense of what juries are like. Um, but it also occurred to me that that uh, a, a few things of the way people act does have to do with the things you learn about them. So their personality traits or their careers or their family lives, um, which I think is, again, like it's, it's, it's a well done, it's a well done component. I guess we're both agreeing that it's a great movie, but I still don't think that it's 
necessarily edge of your seat. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Uh, I, and you know, while I think Henry Fonda is, is definitely sort of a terrific actor, I wouldn't even call him the best performer in this film. I think that title really goes to Lee J. Cobb, who plays juror number three, who is essentially the main opposition, uh, to Henry Fonda's juror. He is the most vocal, the most antagonistic, uh, I, I, it's tough to say if I would say the most racist because there, there's definitely one or two other characters who sort of challenge him for that title with less speaking lines. But I don't think this movie would have worked without his very powerful performance contrasting Henry Fonda. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, he, he's the, the father and like the father character. He's the one who, who, okay, where is this all coming from? Okay. Well, there's clearly problems with his own family relationships too. And I think that that's, uh, this is one of those movies I don't think we're going to see redone again, or at least not so soon, because there's a lot of challenges with it, which, I mean, obviously the main part of the plot, but also being able to, for, for, for modern people, to be able to relate to these characters in the same way, um, especially in the way that they're acted. It's like nothing's going to beat many of these performances for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, you know, you kind of go through the cast of people that are involved in this and you look at their names and they might not jump off the page, but then you go through their IMDb profile and you sort of realize that they're sort of, you know, the list of greatest character actors from cinema from the 40s through 70s. And you it just sort of blows your mind how you can kind of get all of these people in one film, not just Lee J. Cobb, but Jack Klugman and um, Ed Bagley and uh, Martin Balsam and a few others where, you you know, you look at them and you realize you're like, wow, I've definitely seen this guy in, in a ton of other really great smaller parts supporting roles. Definitely. And then you uh, realize that it, this was also Sidney Lumet's first movie, mm -hmm. which is also kind of wild for how long and illustrious his career was. Um, and also the fact that this was successful enough, despite not being a box office hit, uh, for him to continue to make movies like this as well. Yeah, yeah. Lament is definitely one of my favorite underrated directors. I haven't seen a, a ton of his films. I think I've probably only seen three or four, but everything that I have seen has always blown me away because even when he's at his quote unquote worst, I guess, if you want to call it that, he's still making really interesting choices, taking a real command of the screen and, and inserting his presence in a way that few other directors really were able to do while never really getting that sort of huge mainstream blockbuster success outside of, uh, you know, one or two films, the, the biggest probably being um, Dog Day Afternoon. I would also rec recommend The Fugitive Kind. <laughs> just yeah. to throw that out there. <laughs> okay. I haven't seen that one. So, okay, that's, that's good to know. It's uh, an adaptation of, um, of Orpheus Descending. Okay. By Tennessee Williams. Okay. Uh, and I guess his other biggest, biggest film would probably have been Network, which was, which was pretty big. Um, uh, Serpico is another solid one. And his, his last film that he did before The Devil Knows You're Dead, which was a very odd movie with Ethan Hawke and Philip Seymour Hoffman, but one that I, I quite enjoyed. And don't also forget about The Wiz. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. That always sort of confuses me, like throws you for the loop. You know, you have this very iconic black musical and who's the guy that directs it is the guy that did 12 Angry Men. <laughs> well, ex 
I mean, it's it, it's worth saying that he didn't really do the whole thing because Barry Gordy kind of stepped in and took over for pieces of it. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's it's a bit surprising, especially because the previous film before that was Echoes, and before that was Network, which is a very he had a very interesting seventies, like most people in the seventies. Yes, I, I'm sure it was very uh, substance filled. <laughs> I think we should, we've been dancing around it, but I think we should talk about, um, obviously, the the heart of uh, 12 Angry Men. Not the heart, but a major piece is the racism. Mm-hmm. Just going to let that sit there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. This, this movie is about um, the trial of a young boy who sort of lives in, a, in the ghetto. Um, and while we're led to believe that... I'm guessing he's some sort of Italian or, or, or something, maybe Puerto Rican. The, his ethnicity is never revealed. All we know is that he lives in a low-income housing. Uh, he's called that people by the group of white men. Um, so, you know, it's sort of interesting. I watch this movie, and despite the fact that you see the boy at the very beginning of the movie, I think really what Lament is trying to say is that this movie is about uh, white racism towards black people, especially their prejudices, because, you know, it'd be a lot harder back in 1957 to convince an audience and slowly turn around a jury of, of 12 white men that, you know, the black people aren't all that bad. I think that's a nice sort of subtext where you can read into it. Um, what are your sort of thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that it's um, it's pretty it's pretty clear. Um, I was trying to to look back, and in the '97 version, they they show the the accused, and it's also, of course, a person of color. Um, and, and but I think it's it's also that uh, there were a few films in the '40s, '50s, '60s that sort of said, "Hey, white people that are watching this, here's something for you to think about." Um, I think this was the one that did the did one of the best jobs of sort of saying, let's not gloss over this. Some of you were voting the way you're voting just because you looked at the accused and immediately assumed you looked at the boy and said, okay, this is who he is. Um, this is his identity. And that unfortunately is something that uh, is still a percentage in, in today's society, especially amongst white people in North America. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, I think about the, um, Oh shoot! I'm I'm blanking on what the the name of the movie is. Uh, oh, Gentleman's Agreement. Uh, there's a Best Picture winner from 1947 named Gentleman Gentleman's Agreement, which is essentially a movie about anti-Semitism, which I think functions in a very similar way, where it's a way to sort of uh, break the ice for as far as mainstream white America went at the time of being like, hey, you know. Just because you look down on other people, that doesn't mean that they're different. And maybe you should sort of reevaluate the way you think about things just because, you know, you're raised this way doesn't mean you need to always be this way. And I think these films sort of go hand in hand where let's tackle, you know, this issue of racism in a way that you're probably going to be more open to. And then once we get you on board with this, then we can kind of go on to the next step because it's now been normalized that this thinking isn't right. Yeah, and I think that this this film does a good job of sort of just addressing head on. It's like, okay, this isn't the issue. We need to actually talk about the issue, which is which sort of makes the resolution. Um, which I, do we spoil it? Have we assumed people have seen the movie and, and know just 
This is movie, that okay? Yeah, this movie came out in 1957, so spoilers. There could be like a six, a 68 year old person who was a kid and never watched it. I'm joking. Uh, spoilers <laughs> here. Um, the the glasses thing and the nose, um, the, the spots on the nose, mm-hmm. which um, uh, one day when we no longer need glasses, whenever that happens, thanks to mutations or cyborgs or whatever, this movie will officially become obsolete. But until then, um, I think that that the fact that they sort of Let's get on. Let's move on from the fact that this this uh, this accused person is a person of color, and let's solve the problem. Um, and it's something that I feel like is uh, there are people today that would say, okay, well that's the case in this movie, but that's not real life, which I think is just ridiculous. But um, at least at least the, these conversations were happening. They're happening a lot more in movies now than they than they even used to. So this really must have stuck out as a sore thumb then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting you bring up the glasses because the movie sort of starts off right away. You know, you have most of the jury, the ones that are being vocal about saying that the boy is guilty. It's because he's from the slums, because he's that ethnicity, because he grew up in this neighborhood, things like that. And then sort of once that, that layer is peeled back a little bit and you start being like, okay, well, just because, you know, he was born in this neighborhood doesn't mean he automatically is what you think he is just because he is this ethnicity doesn't mean he can't you know better himself by your standards because one of the characters immigrated from italy one of the jurors and so then once they sort of peel back that like very first prejudice of he has to be guilty because of who he is then the movie sort of allows you to sort of get into the nuts and bolts of evaluating the case okay well why do we think it's this way well because of the knife all right well you know, it's not that uncommon of a knife. All right, well, let's talk about the old man that lives beneath it and said that he ran to the door. Okay, well, the old man had a limp and he probably couldn't actually walk to the door in 15 seconds. Or how about the lady that was sleeping with her glasses off? She couldn't see across the way. And so it sort of does a nice little onion trick where every time you sort of remove a small group of the people where, you know, right away they're like, oh, it's who the boy is. Let's peel that back. All right, now we're all stopping here. Okay, now we've got the first little bits of facts where maybe it isn't all that. And then you peel back another layer and then another layer until you're at the very end where, it, you know, he managed to, manages to convince all 11 other men. And I, I'm just picturing now as you go through this, a, a 10-year-old Dick Wolf who created the Law & Order in the Chicago franchise – franchises um watching this movie in theaters probably wasn't supposed to and just thinking okay i'm taking all the notes how do i make this happen more and then i realized i watched a lot of order a lot of law and order in the 90s with my parents i have no idea why um and then that seeped into some csi as well um that they they sort of pull on this this same idea many times the identity of the accused or the identity of sometimes the victim but usually the the suspect or one of the suspects and that that's in some episodes, I specifically remember, especially in SVU, which deals with the most like intense crimes, it was almost always something that wasn't a, a cis white guy until it was. Mm-hmm. So the suspect is all these other people, and then it's, of course, Creepy Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and, and I think that the film does a, a very interesting job, you know, definitely sort of subverting the audience's expectations of the way that they're sort of dismantling the case. Now, I think, you know, the, the one main thing about this movie that we can't really 
going further without talking about is this movie is called 12 angry men um this movie is definitely a product of its time at a time when in order to be a jury member you had to be a white man obviously this is no longer the case anymore but it definitely influenced the way the film was made and the way we had to look at it and obviously cannot be recreated in the same way today because there would never be a jury of 12 white men in the same at the exact same time no, it's almost it's almost next to impossible now. I don't think they can even be created that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I I've seen I've seen it called Twelve Angry Jurors, where it's a mix of people. Um, I've seen Twelve Angry Men, where uh, it's men and women identified people. Um, all sorts of uh, all sorts of uh, like race identities as well. And they just played it in every case, no matter who's on the stage in these cases, the the plays is that they play it straight. They play it how it's written. They're acting as 12 angry men, white, white men in the fifties. Um, but what I think is, is certainly interesting of this is you can't fill, you can't fill that room with the same people, um, in like in, if it were real life, uh, and sorry, not the same people with different people, a better representation of humanity, I guess, um, and would have necessarily come to the same result. But I think you would have had a very different kind of argument then too. And I think that's another piece of why it can't really be remade in the same way. Um, today and i don't think it's really fair to just do quote unquote 12 angry jurors and just um cast a bunch of people because it won't have the same weight you're looking at people in the 50s of multiple different classes but again all white men and these are the these are the things they bring with them Mm -hmm. yeah because when the movie starts all we see is what these jurors look like so you know that's definitely a bit of an audience bringing their own preconceived notions into it but you know we look at them and we see no discernible differences between them these are these are 12 men ranging in ages from 40 to 75 or so whatever the oldest juror might be we know nothing else about them other than they're all wearing suits they presumably come from similar walks of life and then when that sort of is slowly revealed the first one that's revealed is uh, a guy that also grew up in the slum but you know managed to make his life better and you know resents to being from that neighborhood and in the sort of way that people look at and then we realize that another one is actually an italian immigrant he's still white but he's an immigrant so that definitely brings a different play into it because back then whether you know people want to admit it or not but like Italians, much like Irish people, were not considered real white people as, you know, as ironic as that sounds nowadays, you know, same as Jewish people as well. They weren't considered real white people. Um, and, and so knowing that one of these jurors was Italian, that's just one step below being a real white person. So there's definitely that sort of prejudices that sort of come out within that room. And then once we learn that about these people, it sort of adds a whole lot of context and weight behind them. Yes. And that's something that can't be done in the same way when all of a sudden you see people and they're different and they have all sorts of different identities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also like, thankfully com- comparing this with a lot of other films of the era and especially earlier, um, is that this can still hold up and still be a lesson. Um, I think that's one of the benefits of the way this, the, the way this film, I think partially because of the reason it was done in black and white as well. Um, just to say that this is, this is a, a parable. This is a, a, a story that constantly happens. Um, whereas other stories, uh, that, that might still tackle racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, whatever, um, they don't really do it the way 
they should even even stuff from 15 20 years ago um i think we were talking about friends the other day and that it hasn't really held up because it's actually a little bit transphobic and it's actually more than a little bit racist and there's all this other stuff going on whereas this film is yes the these things do exist here and this is how it was being tackled for the purpose of the film and something we can still look back on Mm -hmm. Yeah, purely from like a dialogue perspective, I think this film holds up incredibly well, especially when you sort of, you know, I I wrote down two key quotes that I found really interesting. Uh, First, the first one was uh, talking about uh, people of presumably color being, I've known a couple that are okay. How often do we hear things like that, especially from, you know, people that are conservative, Republican, things like that, talking about black people being like, oh, the good ones, things like that. And then there's also another quote near the end of the movie, um, despite, you know, all the facts being laid out and everything proving to the fact that there is at least reasonable doubt whether or not this boy was the actual murderer of his father. Someone said they are entitled to my opinion, which is, you know, very interesting because, you know, we live in this world today where you can have all the facts put in front of you. You can say, yeah, well, I just don't believe that. Sorry. And so we're sort of stuck with this. Well, it's not really an opinion anymore. It's a fact. And you're disagreeing with a fact. And how do you disagree with a fact? Uh, you become um, a politician. I think that's the way to do it. Uh, I think that I just think that that it was a. It, you're right. It's a very good kind of showcase. A, a little bit more of a mirror than I think a lot of movies in the '50s were of the people that were watching it. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people now that need to see need to see a movie like this or need to understand that um, opinion is opinion, and fact is fact, and those are not the same things at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that definitely sort of stuck out for me because I've seen this movie probably half a dozen times, maybe even more. Like I said, it is one of my favorite all-time movies. And that was something that really kind of clicked with me this time is a lot of the rhetoric that you're seeing of, you know, this initial opposition to wanting to even consider if this boy was guilty or not. The dialogue sounds eerily familiar to the same dialogue we're hearing today, especially coming from a lot of major politicians from the United States states right now so we've now decided that it's essential watching if you want to run for any kind of position whatsoever yeah uh you know reading up on the trivia i read that supreme court justice sonia sotomayor actually watched this movie as a young girl and that was one of the reasons that encouraged her to become a lawyer and eventually a judge in the first place uh you know she also being a person of color who who probably felt that she wasn't getting a fair shake at life or at least wasn't viewing society as a whole we're not giving people of color or people that maybe not uh considered you know cis white males getting their proper due diligence and that's really interesting that someone as powerful as her was able to get inspiration from this Uh, like i said dick wolf too i think there's lots of people (laughs) yeah uh you know i think if i were to you know compare this movie or be like if you like this here's some other ones or or maybe make a package them together i think there's two films uh that work really well together to sort of uh, storybook it and one of them would be 
uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, which was made a few years after in 62, which sort of tackles very similar issues of, of racism and prejudice and, uh, you know, not really prejudging people just because of the, the color of their skin. And then uh, a much more modern one would be something like Do the Right Thing, which also kind of deals with uh, issues of, of prejudice and racism, but also taking place in that sweltering New York heat where a lot of this movie's tension comes from the fact that this is supposedly the hottest day of the year during an insane heat wave and they've got no air conditioning or fan running. And so things are literally and figuratively boiling over for these jurors. And I think uh, a movie like Do the Right Thing is sort of a good contemporary to that because that's sort of similar things when the heat gets too hot and people start acting crazy and, and acting out and, and, and a whole bunch of other things. I would agree with you. And I was basically going to say To Kill a, Mock- to Kill a Mockingbird as well, exactly, as a, as a great bookend. Um, and even, I mean, if, if the themes come through in a lot of modern uh, a lot of modern movies, even up till now, if you want an actual thriller, then of course get out. Um, obviously not the same in any way, but still the, 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 the whole idea of especially anti-black racism as well. I do want to make, make a, a point to my original point that I've just pulled up now on my computer. Um, on the AFI's list of 100 years, 100 thrills, um, 12 Angry Men does get on the list a number 88, so AFI considers it a thriller. Mm-hmm. But I will posit that this list also has, right around 43, The Wizard of Oz, which is a movie I would never, ever call a thriller. So take that as you will. Huh, okay. So you're saying AFI is both correct and incorrect at the same time. All right. I think it's possible. It's, <laughs> the lists are quite long. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that's interesting. Um, I, I definitely would not classify The Wizard of Oz as a thriller either, especially since it, it leans so heavily into the fantasy element. Um, yeah, so I guess the question here I want to pose to other people is, do you believe 12 Angry Men to be a subset genre of of thriller is it a courtroom thriller is it not how would you describe the genre um so i think we had a pretty good little discussion i know it's been a, a well over a month since my last contrazoom episode took a bit of a hiatus after the oscars but it was great that we were able to to have this talk and, and thank you so much for for joining me today sammy it's, by my, it's been my pleasure, and I look forward to arguing with you about something again. Hopefully, it'll, in the future, it'll be something we, we actually disagree on and not just the terminology for a really good movie. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll take you to another DC movie, and then we can really argue. You're not going to tell me that you actually like the DC movies, are you? you of course not. This, <laughs> you're just... <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This I is told not you, the it's going to get in every podcast. <laughs> you know what? I, this podcast is over. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, <laughs> make sure you go to liveandlimbo.com and you can check out the show notes there. There, Follow me on Twitter at ContraZoomPod and my own account at DGAPA. Thank you so much for joining me, Sammy. Uh, and thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.